Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra special solo summer edition of Thrash and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast where two genre-rific armies battle it out until one lone legion rises from the ashes of Spotify. And speaking of lonely, I'm Aaron, and I would be joined as usual by my co-host from a different code post, but he's been ecstatic all week because he's been dying to do today's metal album for months. We just didn't think it'd nearly actually kill him. So staying at home, it's Evan the Metal Man. So please send your love and well wishes. Get well soon, Evan. We miss you. So I'm going to fly solo today because I think after the episode you'll agree that adding Evan in in ADR, even just laughter or yep, asking a question that I had originally asked, anything making it seem like he was there kind of might have ruined the integrity of what we're about to talk about in this episode. Obviously my heart goes out to everybody who knew Stephen Sondheim, obviously my guest today knew him as well and had performed his work numerous times. Uh, However, There is a trigger warning on today's episode because we will be touching upon the topic of suicide. So if there's anybody out there who is feeling lost, please know that there are obviously numbers, websites to call, uh, websites to call, websites to visit, phone numbers to call, uh, friends to speak to, family. If you feel completely lost, then you come and start talking to me. All right. No one ever has to feel like that. And so on that note, Anyways, guess what, me? What, me? We have another legendary diva in the studio today, and it's so exciting, this ninny has his arms in the air, because this bodacious British-born beauty burst into the business in the Bernstein-Sondheim classic West Side Story, twice across Australia, before breaking out on the British boards with Jan and Jane and Joan, and of course Janet and Jean, in today's chosen movicle, then did her duty as Judy to search the end of the rainbow... <laughs> Anyways, that award-winning performance, plus her arresting stints across Australia, West End and Broadway as chic Chicagoan Val McCallie saw this Triple Treasure's career locked up the top of the food chain, eating up scenery and audiences alike, and causing us to say, man, she munch up set of mana la mancha, because this artiste is no run-of-the-mill, hun-of-the-mill, as shown by her seriously sultry scene-stealing supporting spot in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, where she stirred the slop and sent Satine back to Berkia. So please help this ninny foot in his mouth with saying a huge g'day, how's it going, to Australia's truly sparkling diamond, a gorgeous goddess who showed us that anything goes in Reno, who was one of the two ladies in Cabaret, turned peachy for all people in Gypsy, made us lose our minds in Broadway's Anastasia, then taught New Yorkers the meaning of Christmas in Pasek and Paul's musical take on A Christmas Story, plus her stunning, multi-award winning scenic flight on the wing of the Little Sparrow in PF, and yet with 60 or so other credits, including performances at the BBC Prom, Sydney Opera House, Carnegie Hall and Royal Albert Hall, it was her deliciously dark performance as the darkly delicious Mrs. Lovett in a Parisian production of Sweeney Todd that had the sadly late and truly phenomenal Stephen Sondheim declare it the best he has ever heard. And quite frankly, nothing I say or pun will ever top that. So before this Dolly's departing for her next nine to five, please welcome to the torture chamber, a leading lady who's a lady leading the way for an entire industry, showing us all how it's done with a menagerie of awards, 
even one from the Queen, iconic performances, and multiple solo albums which showcase a voice that could get a bitch drunk on love because she's that darn lovely. So put your arms and legs in the air because jumping St. Jude, it's the one and only Queen Caroline O'Connor. Holy guacamole, what are you doing on my show? Oh my goodness, that is the best intro I have ever heard. Can I record it? Can I keep it? Can I use it again? Yes, you can. You you may. I think you're about the fifth person who said that. Oh, I'm not kidding. That, That was genius. That's so brilliant. Honest to God, I can't believe that. It was so much more interesting than the usual kind of intro that you get, you know? Yeah. Fun, fun stuff. What a pleasure. Thanks, you guys, for having me on the show. No worries. No, it is an absolute honour that anyone would say yes to this, especially people that I've grown up watching and admiring and even danced to, which we'll get to when we we get to the musical. Um, but if, for people at home, if you think I edited that performance, this time I didn't need to because I nailed that. Oh, my God, I am so incredibly proud, but I am now sweating. You must be exhausted. Yeah. I mean, that that was like a one-man play right it, there. <laughs> it was. It was, yes, no one. And I'll be honest with you, it makes me feel quite old because I don't, I'm not absolutely sure that you got everything in there. I was no, like, that was no. like a lot, but I, I still think there might be a few other things. Yep, you, you played a drunk mum in a film, you were in Oklahoma, <laughs> you've you've done all sorts of stuff along the way, and it, it is oh. just a matter of what can I get the best jokes out of well, and the it. best puns. It is. It's all about the gags. It is. So, okay, now we'll move on to the questions because I have one that I've been I'm starting to ask every guest now. If you were a rock star, what crazy things would you have in your backstage rider? Uh, oh god that's a hard one um probably oh, look at you plenty of champers maybe a bit of a dance floor in there as yeah. well so that you could you could have you could have a little party after the show backstage rather than having to go anywhere else mm. i mean i do like a nice comfy sofa um yeah and I just love music. In my own dressing room, I do tend to have like my portable speaker and I like to play music while I'm getting ready for a show or yep. after the show, you know, when you're coming yep. out of makeup and everything. So, yeah, I reckon it would just be that kind of a setup, party setup. Yeah, I've always said that I wanted a dance floor on my grave so that my enemies could dance on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, speaking of enemies, we'll move on to metal. Have you had any experience with metal along the way? Heavy metal, new metal, fresh metal? Metal music? No. no. I really haven't. I mean, um, I had a brother uh, who sadly is no longer with us, but he was really into that type of music at times. Yep. Not always, but, you know, he had a, he had a bit of a uh, an, an interest in, in heavy metal music. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. I have to say, I haven't. I suppose I probably feel like I'd be a bit dorky, you know, like I'd try and look like I was into heavy metal, but I just wouldn't fit in. Yeah. Hey, look, you didn't shave your head and give yourself a mohawk <laughs> in the early 2000s. So you got off lightly there. Now, you're not the first to come on who has said that. And actually, a lot of people question it, like a lot of musical performers say, why are you asking me? I know nothing about heavy metal. And that's kind of the point. That's, I know nothing. I know a little bit of like Metallica, Pantera, Guns N' Roses, the basic stuff. Um, But so the whole point of this is is for Evan and I to to teach each other. And it felt, it always feels sort of quite confronting, you know, that type of music because there's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of jumping around on the stage and flashing lights and explosions. And it's it's quite, uh, you know, confronting. And I think so you go, oh, ah. 
I know some of it's probably bravado and it's performance, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 overwhelming. It is, it is. So um, I've written a quick review because this week, Evan, as I mentioned in my review, has been dying to do this album, but we have chosen Primus's Pork Soda. And I think I've suggested this to five different guests and along the way it's been like, well, I was thinking we could do Led Zeppelin or I was thinking we could do this band or could we have something harder? And when he finally chooses it, he ends up in hospital, doesn't he? (laughs) That's all. Okay, I've written a quick review. Anyway, so when I first saw the cover, I was like, green jelly, three little pigs. Oh, wait, there's only one of them. Only to realise this is the album Evan's been eager to do for months. And knowing his taste in music, I'm expecting lots of gra-gra-gras. And thus, with my expectations lower than they are with dating, I sighed and pressed commence on the Spotify. But where I was expecting gra-gra-gra, I actually got a strange swamp creature telling me dark and whimsical tales that I couldn't understand, on account of not paying attention. And where I was expecting a boring basic bitch bassline, what I got was the rock equivalent of a strange swamp hillbilly playing their bass like a banjo. And even though I expected loud thumping drums, boom, 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 what I got was the strange melodic sounds of a swamp creature playing drums on the slimy rocks with the rib bones of a hillbilly. And did I enjoy this experience? It certainly let the moon shine on some dark lyrics. Four and a half stars. And shut up, Evan. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, I kind of really enjoyed this. This was weird. It was different. It was interesting. Where do they come from? Now they're from California. Okay. And are they quite a young new group? No, they're in their 50s now. They're mid-50s. Gosh. Yeah. There's a whole world out there that I'm unaware of. <laughs> yeah. It's because you've been working your ass off for at least 30 <laughs> years. 35 years or something. Yes, actually 40 years. 40, oh, goodness this year. And I don't want, didn't want to sound like one of those actors that you know, that say, you know, 40 years in the business, you know, that I have done. I didn't want to sound like that. But then I'm like, geez, it really is 40 years. I'm not even fibbing. I was 19 when I did my first, you know, professional show. Oh, wow. So. Oh, no, I've just given everyone my age. Brilliant. Uh, no, no, it's fine. Look, there's Wikipedia there for a reason That's to right. torture us all. You know, they're, they're in their mid-50s. Actually, the drummer, um, and I quite enjoyed the drumming. It was a lot different to what we're used to. We've had so much thrush, so much just couldn't understand any of it. Uh, the drummer, Tim Alexander, I think his name was, he was in Blue Man Group for a while. Oh, was he? Okay, yeah. I, 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 mm. Yeah, and when I heard that, I was like, yeah, actually, I, I can hear that in his style that there's definitely a reckless abandon to their songwriting, I think, and, and their music. Did you get a chance to listen to it? No. No, that's fine. You won't be the first guest to <laughs> save themselves the torture, but this <laughs> this was actually pretty good. Okay. They do the theme song to South Park. Oh, right. Yeah. Which... I don't know the words, but I love it. Yeah. It's sort of that hillbilly sound. Yeah, it is very much a hillbilly sound. It's sort of like a blue, do you call it bluegrass style music? Yeah. yeah. There's a musical theatre performer actually called Ramin Karamlu. I don't know if yep. you're familiar with Ramin, but yep, yep. he loves that type of music and he has recorded, I think he's done an album not too long ago. Um, and 
and often does live concerts of that style of music. Damn, well, if, look, he's got thousands of girls throwing himself at him every day. Yeah. If I could get through the, the mess and the noise, I would love to have him on. He's now rehearsing for uh, Sunset Boulevard. They're going to do it at the Royal Albert Hall. That's and like Mas Murray. I did uh, Anastasia with him. So, you know, I, I was happy to get to work with him. He's a tremendous talent and great fun. Yep. Really good fun to work with. Yeah, because we've had Hadley Fraser on, who them two are like oh, best yeah. friends. So That's right. Well, you've got a contact there. Yes, yes, yeah, so hopefully. <laughs> the problem is like I don't always, like even though guests will come on and, you know, everyone will be like friendly and like, oh, you know, when you're in New York, we'll have a drink together. I still don't feel like I could go to people and say, oh, could you pass on this message to so-and-so for me? Well, I do think some people are more easygoing about that sort of thing than others. Yeah. You know, they're more like, yeah, I'll just mention, I'll mention my friend and if they're interested, you know, the others are like, oh, no, I wouldn't want you to have to approach them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just depends. Yeah. Some people are very, I suppose, generous in that way. Um, yeah. yeah. I would prefer to give people a fantastic introduction that they're never going to forget and tell their all their friends about us and say, if you get an invite from these guys, say yes. So I'd rather prove my worth that yeah, way. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not like you just throw it together. You you really put a lot of work and a lot of effort into it. Yeah. For sure. A hell of a lot. Um, But yes, yeah, so anyways, back to the, the episode. Now, I was, yeah, quite impressed with this. As, as I said, we have had so much of the same things that you can't understand but now Spotify has put a thing on with lyrics on on their function. Oh, okay. So if you open the app and there's a little microphone icon and it brings up the lyrics and I sat there reading, I sat there reading all the lyrics, but one song in particular, Bob, sort of sent me really cold because this was a song about suicide, but it wasn't done in a very, it wasn't a ballad. It wasn't slow. It, it was almost, it was dark, but almost taunting. And I, I, that's kind of what I like about punk right. in a lot of ways is that it's sort of that cheekiness that they will talk about the dark sub, uh, subjects, but not through ballads. Yeah, I was just about to say to you that that is a difficult subject to actually yeah. to execute, you know, uh, tastefully and carefully and because it's incredibly uh, an emotional situation. I mean, I, I don't know if you're aware, but I lost a brother oh, to suicide. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, I, I, if I, look, if yeah. I'd known that, I, I would have crossed that no. off my notes. Um, look, you know, when my parents were alive, it was something that we just did not discuss. And it was very painful to not be able to discuss it, to be honest, but it was for their benefit. But as a grown up, I actually do, I, I feel better it, talking about it, um, it's such an important thing in the world, and in Australia in particular, as we know, we're, we're famous for our statistics, sadly, of suicide. And so um, it's actually quite a relief It's to be able to discuss it, to talk about it. It's almost like it's therapy, you know. It's yeah. quite nice to just oh, be able to... Because growing up as an Irish Catholic girl um, and in an Irish Catholic family. Oh, you're taught to not talk, yeah. It's like you don't, and also it's a sin, and then it's, you know, there's so much baggage that goes with it. And so, yeah, it is one of those subjects, isn't it? So it hasn't really been talked about a lot because it's so painful. So for people to be able to express it through music is it's really great that, because people like me and other people, you know, we can't just pretend these things don't happen. No. 
And I don't know, I mean, I don't know if I, I should even bring it up now, but, you know, there's a musical called Dear Evan Hansen. And I remember seeing that and going, wow, you know, they really handled this subject matter brilliantly because I always wondered when that day would come when people would sing about this sort of subject. Yeah. So I really get where you're coming from talking about the song and people assume it's going to be a ballad and it's going to be sad and, yeah. you know. And it was just as cathartic hearing it because it was respectful. It was from his point of view, sort of saying like he, he has a friend and blah, blah, blah. And it sort of repeats like the, the end of the first line then starts off the second line. And so it's, so it's this connecting thing. And then, um, and then the running theme is in the apartment where he lived. And the final bit of the song is the man saying that since then he hasn't gone back to the apartment where he lived. Mm. And I thought it was just such a remarkable achievement to, to do something like that, that be respectful for one thing, be melodic, um, but not sound like the rest of them because there are so many songs that are on this topic or at least about the pain of life and I, I, I have to I have to admit something I don't know that I've ever done an interview where I've actually talked about that so openly before oh really yeah this is the first for me because I I was gonna I, ask you if you wanted I me think, to cut it out to just to... No, I just think a lot of people are, have never been aware of it because I was just being I was being really respectful of my parents at the time yeah that was that was their wish and I didn't want to upset them in any way but you know there comes a point when you have to say well you know we're all suffering and so um yeah I don't mind at all I think it comes as a surprise to a lot of people because they weren't aware of it because it wasn't something it's a subject matter that people find very difficult to talk about it's incredibly painful but unlike the pain that the person themselves is going through so what I always kept in mind was imagine you know, what that person's pain feels like. There's nothing yeah. quite like that pain to make somebody, you know, uh, make them make a choice like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I have a certain amount of respect um, for people in a weird sort of way for people who make those extraordinary choices. And to, to hear it in song, anything, I mean, music just makes everything better it does <laughs> i think anyway doesn't it yeah it's comforting it's com oh it's comfort food it really is it really is unfortunately yeah. i can't gain weight from listening too much music <laughs> but also just on on that like i i hear it a lot from my friends when especially during covid people were like oh why do we hear from actors they've all got private planes and Hollywood Hills mansions no they frigging don't for crying out loud my god the people who have their private planes are the network owners for one thing they're the studio owners they're the ones that sign the checks really uh, you know and people like Leonardo DiCaprio sure mega star but most actors in Hollywood and even then not just every actor is a Hollywood actor full stop but it seems mm -hmm. to be the thing um but no I, I think there's this notion that celebrities are unfallible or they're inhuman they, they don't feel the pain that we feel they don't suffer like we suffer and that's bullshit kids seriously get that out of your heads they're all just humans really and everyone goes through awful things in life this is a tough world that we live in it really really is and that's no reason for us to to then just hide away from that we we have to face the darkness really and bring our light 
to that darkness, which I think this album overall really did in, in a lot of ways, because especially that that one song in particular, and also, as I say, it sort of almost came across as taunting. I don't think that was the intention, but I just think that was sort of that darkness that it was, look, what I've always said about Sondheim is that what I get from his work is that the universe is always looking down on us with a twisted smile through the good and the bad. There's always a twisted smile on there, this sly smile that you think you're happy now, just you wait. You think things are dark now, just you wait. There's always something that we can't see. And that's very much a vibe I, I got from this album. And I think maybe that's why I just, every time that song would come on, I was covered in goosebumps. I really was because it was... Emotions are not one-dimensional. No. You know, there's several ways of uh, feeling an emotion mm. uh, or the impact of something that happens to you. And there's so many different ways to react to it and to act on it. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I, Sondheim certainly was wonderful at, uh, at times possibly saying things about moments that other people didn't want to say but were a fact yeah. you know of, of of how people really feel um about situ emotional situations family situations uh, he was really great especially I think I'm speaking because I'm a woman yeah. but he to me he was extraordinarily clever at, at expressing women's emotions yeah um, it's very hard it's very easy to read the, the lyrics off his page and to feel it yeah and to be able to express it I think so thank thank you Mr Sondheim for that <laughs> no it's very it's very hard, you know, like there's lots of somebody like that. Um, you know, I was trying to do an analogy of losing someone so great. And it's a bit like, I don't know, imagine if someone just said, hey, listen, what, Christmas is cancelled. We're not doing it anymore. That, yeah. And not that he, you can't compare him to Christmas, but it's a bit like something on that sort of scale that doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. And no, so I was walking my dog and listening to Move On from Sunday in the Park with George and sort of collapsed, you know, yeah. on the bark, on the ground, just sobbing my eyes out. Yeah. Get, get your phone. Get your phone. Yeah. Get oh. your phone. You, you've got a life. Oh. So I, I'm not going to get yeah. in the way. It's, it's no, I, I, this is someone that does call persistently. What I'm going to do, I'm going to turn it off. Okay. Some people don't leave, <laughs> yeah, but some people don't leave messages. Do yeah. you know what I mean? They just keep calling until you answer. And I quite like a bit of a, my answer machine on my phone says, my, this is Caroline, please leave me a lovely message. <laughs> I, I do think there's something nice about, you know, someone saying, hi, hi, it's me. How are you going? Yeah. Um, and rather than just hanging up. Yeah, no, I get but that. I can't seem to turn off this phone. It did that thing where it went into like an emergency um, place. Here we go. There we go. So I turned the and it's funny. My my first experience with him was actually Dick Tracy. Oh, with Madonna yeah. singing it. So I'm guessing Patty Lepone's never going to come on this show after I say that out loud. Goodness me, because oh. she's not a fan. She's not a fan. Uh, oh, after a veto. You know this sooner or later, you're going to be mine. I've never sung it, but I've always wanted to. But I was so stupid years ago. I actually also thought he wrote the other one, the, 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 the fast song that she sang. Oh, what was it? Um, Hanky Panky. Hanky Panky. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was like, I think you wrote that one as well, which of course you didn't. No. But sooner or later is a 
I've seen it performed a couple of times. It's not an easy song to sing. No. And it's not an easy song to watch if someone doesn't do it well. No, no, sometimes not at all. When people don't do it well, it is not easy to watch. No, it, it really isn't. And I've been in an audience and it's been, because it is very repetitious and it is, unless you do have that kind of appeal, it's just can't pull it off, you know? Yeah. Um, but that was an interesting moment when he wrote that song, wasn't it? No, that came out of left field. It got him an Oscar, so... That's, you know, but that, yeah, so that was my child. I remember seeing that at the movies, which I, I watch it back now and I think, God, no wonder I have a twisted sense of humor. But you know, I absolutely loved Madonna in Evita. Me too. I, have to say, Me too. I loved her in Evita. Me too. I, I tell you well, that. I won't have a bad word said about her with that because no. I think she looked and was, it was quite sensational. And so um, when I was younger, actually, my nickname, because I used to, well, I sort of did look a little bit like Madonna when I was younger, when I had a yep. bob, especially, and because we've got the same kind of jaw. Mm -hmm. And um, my friends used to call me Madonna O'Connor. <laughs> that was my nickname. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, of course, I grew up during the whole Papa Don't Preach, all that, you know, the whole thing was around at that age where I could really enjoy it. Yes, me too. A soon-to-be gay four-year-old. Pretty much dancing around in my sister's clothing, blazing the trail for us all, apparently. Um, and now I like, sh I shave my head and, well, usually I shave my head and I have a moustache. So, yes, no, we change. I think we we can move on from the, the metal album. Thank you for that, Evan. That we finally got that out of the way. You can stop nagging me now. But anyways, we'll throw it a quick ad break because we are joined by the, oh my God, amazing Caroline O'Connor. This summer, winter, spring, or fall, the first ever musical theater sitcom where you go behind the scenes of the latest West End show, The Fosse Forest Ballet. Where's the important stuff? Aha! A thousand pound a week ensemble rate. Ah, that's what Mamma Mia likes. Starring Philip Joel and a West End cast featuring Carrie Alice, Darren Denny, Louise Demon, and Oliver Savile, and more. It all started in 1987 when I was a jobbing actress working in a diner. Yeah, it's just I, I had a really bad experience when I was touring Australia with a wombat. <gasps> Darling! How long have I been mentoring you? Three months? Two years. So her name is Henrietta. The horse. Yes. I've managed to secure you an audition for the biggest, most innovative, and the latest show to be going into the West End. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Think more along the lines of Pant. Frozen. You can watch this episode for the price of a coffee. Simply go to www.thefussyforestbelly.com. Any and all profits go back to theatre charities, acting for others, and the theatre's trust. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll see a grown man in sparkly tights. Tight nights. Nice. Tights. Alrighty, we're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, and we're joined by, I have absolutely no idea how this is happening, but the one and only Caroline O'Connor. Why do my idols keep coming on this show? Is it the heat? You have a certain charm oh. uh, with your invitation, I must say. Oh, that's, really? I think that's probably why. 
you know, it, the invitations you get don't always sound so beautiful, uh, really? so oh, so you. irresistible. You think, well, I, goodness me, this this is such a wonderful invitation that I'd be crazy not to accept. Oh, wow. Charm is a very old-fashioned quality that doesn't exist very much anymore. No, um, it doesn't. It's become quite basic. Yeah. And, Everyone's taking themselves too seriously, that's why. You know, I kind of like that oldie-worldie style of things. I know, for, I'm going to talk about Sondheim again, but I, I'm sorry now I never wrote him a letter because I didn't realise what a, what a letter writer he was. I mean, mm. apparently people, you wrote to him, he wrote back, you know, handwritten letters. And if I'd known that, because I did, like, think... I did quite a few of his shows. I did Sweeney and I did Follies and I did Assassins and Into the Woods. And so I, and also his 80th birthday party at the Royal Albert Hall. So I wish I'd written him a letter because I'd be able to, you know, look at that now. And, but I met the man, you know, so on occasions he came to see the shows that I was doing. And so that was something else and terrifying, exciting and terrifying to have him in the audience. So, yeah, that's a charm, a letter writing. I have a lot of letters from people. I have a lot of cards people wrote me, good luck cards, opening night cards. I still have them in cardboard boxes because I figure in my old age I'll enjoy sitting and reading them. You know, there's something about someone going to a shop and trying to choose the right card for you and then they sit down and they write something beautiful to make you feel better about yourself or more confident. Mm-hmm. You know? Email's not quite the same. No, it's not. Like that's why I, I handwrite all my scripts. Yes, like, that's beautiful. Like, as you can see, like I, I get a lot of stick for it from my co-host. Thank you very much, Evan, because... You make changes quickly like that too, can't you? You could be looking at that and scribble it out and go, no, this word's better and I'm going yeah, to... Suddenly, while you're, while you're on the go, you yeah. can change things up. I have a lot of scripts where I've got handwritten notes on the side of ideas and things that I would like to contribute, uh, contribute, not contribute. I was doing the American contribute uh, to to the actual, um, you know, performance or ideas before I start a a play. I might read it and write down a few, that might be a nice thing to do in that moment. You know, just ideas in in pencil. Hmm. And I'll I'll tell you what, um, well, I'll get to that after this one because I'd like to know from a performer's point of view and someone who is a star, what do you define as star quality? It's such a hard question. As in, what's your secret? What's those 11 secret herbs and spices? <laughs> um, the special sauce on the, big, on the Big Mac, that kind of thing. Yep. You know what, I think a lot of great, the, well, the performers that inspired me, for instance, that I always thought had extraordinary star quality, when I, because I used to read, I used to read more than I do now. I used to read autobiographies more before. Now you can read bits, like you say, little bits of information all the time. Um, but they always seem to me to care about the audiences. It was some, the star quality came from wanting to please a, a lot of people in a room. And uh, to me, that made a star was not doing stuff that they just did for their own egos, but was to share their talent. Um, and that's why so many people loved people like Garland because they felt like she was just giving, 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 being so generous as, as did Piaf, they would sacrifice their own happiness and their own lives, their own lives. I think stars, the word stars sort of thrown around a little bit now, um, a star, I think they earn their, their stardom as well. They earn their star in the sky because they've 
contributed so much, given so much of their lives and career. Not just one good song or one, you know what I mean? It's a, a lifetime yeah. of being good at what they do. That to me makes a star. I look at what they've invested and what they and how they communicate with an audience, and I think, wow, that's 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 powerful to stand on a stage and people are gripped. Yeah, that's what that star quality is. That you can't not look, and you have to listen. They command it of you without saying it. It's just yeah. with their, what they're doing. Um, you know, look at people like Freddie Mercury and Elton mm. John, and people. You know, they walk on a stage and they were mesmerizing. You know, like they just owned the, the stage. Yep. So I think a star quality is, um, it's earned. They earn it with their, with their commitment. Yes, no, definitely. I agree with that because I'm, I'm one of these people who is very much against these video game players. It's very hard to, to entertain in a live situation. Yeah. I mean, it, it's easy to get on screen and just sing and, you know, and you, you don't know what the reaction, you only get it written in front of you. You don't get that organic kind of, the size of an audience mm-hmm. or that little bit of a pause before the applaud, the, those incredible emotions that you feel when you're watching something happening for real. And, and also as a performer, sometimes if the audience is really good, your performance is changed by that. Sorry, that's my, my little Lola in background having a bark yeah. there at some oh, I want a puppy. Your, your performance is changed. You, you, you can feel the vibe from the audience. So you go, I'm going to give them a little bit more now because yeah. I think we're all having a really great time. But I, I don't think you can feel that on screen. I don't, I don't no. know that you can. No. And I, I no. don't see these. The video game players, they call themselves content creators. Oh, right. Stephen Sondheim created freaking content. I wrote a... 490 page novel this is content sitting there filming yourself playing a video game is an insult to artists like yourself Stephen Sondheim Joanna Gleason Alison Frazier and I could keep naming names Mm. people who have done exactly that given their all they have faced the audiences they've felt that from the audiences they've felt the criticism from the audience very critical industry to be in, actually give you your critic you're criticized it's always part of the job yeah. is the critique and sadly these days i don't think a lot of people who do the critiquing have as much experience as they did years gone by of you know i mean i mean i work with some people sometimes and i, I they, they don't go and see shows even and i think wow like that's you have to keep yourself interested and and to see what's going on, you know, like you don't just do it. You, you've got to, anyway, that's just me. It's like if I talk to students, I say, what was the last show you saw? Or what did you see this year? And if they haven't been to see something other than the most popular thing that's mm-hmm. around, mm-hmm. I feel like that's not, you're not educating yourself. No. And that's why, that's why I like working overseas because I, I put my, I feel like I'm putting myself up against some of the best people. And that way I can judge whether I'm doing a good job or not. But if I just remain a, big fish in a small sea I'm never going to know if I can be a better performer yeah. you know I'll just be satisfied with what I've got yeah and um, and your ego would rest on those laurels and you would be happy at the top of the food chain here you've got to sort of yeah you've got to uh, I mean gosh you think about some of those performances of people you know overseas and the things that they've done over the years the greats the greats yeah. the stars and the people and also there's something about people being able to stay there. Yes. It's not, 
it's the getting there is hard, but the staying there is harder. Yeah. So that's why I'm, I admire all those, you know, the Patty Lapones and the Bernadette Peters and the yeah. Betty Buckleys and the people that are still able to go out there and do eight shows a week. Yep. And people who still won't accept my invitation to come on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. Um, oh, look, you know, <clears throat> patience is a virtue, as they say. Yep. You never know you're like in a big city. I've got all exactly. the puns. Exactly. Now, we've got, um, we got a yes from Alex. Oh, wow. That's fabulous. And you talked to David Zippel, did you? Yes. Uh, we had a fantastic conversation with I him. Love, I'm just going to turn my fan on quickly because yep. I'm a bit hot. Yeah, no worries. As long as it doesn't spoil your sound, let no, me no. know if it does. No, no, that's fine. Um, um, David, I love, I, I've never gotten the chance to work with him. I auditioned for a show he wrote yep. called The Goodbye Girl and it was going to be on in Australia. That's right, and, yes. Uh, he was and then it was cancelled and I didn't get to do it. And then he always sort of, has always been friendly to me ever since. I mean, if I ever see him in New York or he's just always been kind to me. Yeah. And even though I didn't even do the show because it didn't happen. Mm. But then when I heard City of Angels, I just went, oh, come on. That is just, you know. Yeah. To, to, and then to be able to say, I know him. I know him. And he wrote that show, you know, like it's crazy to me. But You've talked to Andrew Lipper and I've worked with him. You yeah. know, I did oh. a show with him and you just go, oh my God, he's amazing. I, yeah. I say, listen to Andrew Lipper's episode. He came ready to play. He went on a five minute rant about the metal album. It was remarkable. And David Zippel is a beautiful man. He is so oh. sweet um, and so kind. But that's how I feel having you guys. And look, I know you guys are just people. I, I've got friends in the industry myself, so I... I'm not really phased by it personally. But once that microphone goes on, I have to be, you know, hype it up and and boost people's um boost people's confidence and, and their egos, basically. Um, but to have any time a guest laughs at my joke, it is absolute validation because my family do not find me funny at all. I have to live <laughs> with three people who just do not laugh at anything I have to say. So to to have the idols that I've grown up watching and that have inspired me, showed me what's possible to, to hear those people laughing at my jokes. Like that's. Oh, that's great. That's why you were meant to do this then. Hopefully. Yeah. So it was just on, on a whim. Yeah. Anyway. So we're going to move on to the musical. I talk too much. Though. I'm no, a no, no. Look, we, we love it. We, we had one guest come on for three hours. Oh God. No, I can't do three hours. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I, I felt responsible this was early on. I felt like because I'm the producer, I'm meant to keep control of the. No, but some people just, if they're enjoying themselves, they don't notice the time go by. And it's. Exactly. Uh, you know, yeah, that's, it just happens. It's, you're not forcing it to happen. No. It just happens. That's it. And the conversation flows as it flows. And so. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. That's... It's not just about a question and an answer, is it? No. Sometimes we digress and talk about other things. They just, you know. If it's comfortable. Yeah, and no, that's it. So anyways, uh, we'll move on to the musical. We're going to do Mac and Mabel because this was actually one that I'm not too familiar with myself. Okay. So I thought, so I thought, okay, so in 1998, which was only three years after you had done this on the, the West End, we did in my acting class review, we did two of the numbers, um, hundreds of girls, which I don't know why we did that with children. I don't know what's wrong with my acting teacher. She made some pretty bad choices along the way, I tell you that. Um, just in name of art. 
but then we also did whatever happened to Mabel. We, and I know it was your version because from that, that was the one version I would always listen to. On, on any time I would have a playlist of Broadway, it would always be your version of whatever happened to Mabel. So I knew those two songs. I knew Tap Your Troubles Away, which I didn't know was from this. Okay. I learned that in the past week. And I've been into musical theatre for 30, not 30 years. Uh, well, nearly, yeah, 27 years. So It's a rare one, though. It is. It's one of those that, you know, uh, sort of slipped through the net in some respects because it wasn't as successful as no. other shows that Jerry Herman had written. Yeah, Hello, Dolly. Yeah, La Cage Fall, La uh, yeah. Mame, uh, you know, so Dear World. I mean, he, he was a genius too. And yep. so, yes. That's probably why yep. you didn't know it. No, just uh, I, I mean, it had been done locally when I was in theatre. I remember it, remember seeing the flyers and everything that all these weird memories that I have. Goodness gracious me. Uh, but, anyways, I knew Tap Your Troubles Away from The Muppet Show. Oh, <laughs> and who was the star that did that number? Kermit the Frog. Oh, with another star or just Kermit? Just Kermit, because I, if I remember oh. correctly, it was like a kaleidoscope of images that were circling around him. Like a okay. uh, sort of like um honeycone or beehive. What's that hexagon oh, yeah. pattern? Yeah, a kaleidoscope. Yeah. Yeah, like a kaleidoscope. If I remember, it was um. Was he actually tap dancing, or was he just singing the song? Well, yeah, in in his little. Yeah, I think you remember. Yeah, you saw his feet. If I remember. His little correctly. sort of like his little green legs. Yeah, they're, they're flapping like around that. on the ground like they do. Um, <laughs> I got to absolutely love the Muppets. Yeah, g'day Aaron here. Apparently I got that completely wrong when I looked it up online after recording. It was actually Gilda Radner. What I think I might have been thinking of, because I, I, for some reason I didn't look up what I was thinking of, it might have been the happy feet that Kermit did or something or stepping out with my baby or there was something. Kermit's tap danced along the way. Anyways, back to the episode. Just thought I should clarify that because it was the brilliant Gilda Radner and we're talking about a female comedian in this, so all due respect, back to the episode. And wherever he ain't, I know this from somewhere. I've asked a couple of people, what, where's this from? It's It's been used in a movie, a commercial or something. So I knew four songs from this show, but I had mm. no idea that it was about a real life filmmaker yeah. And, well, their, their tumultuous relationship that Fatty Arbuckle and Frank Capra were in it. Like, I had no idea. And Well, we all, we know who the people are that Max Sennett was. You know, not yeah, everybody knows who Max Sennett was. No. He was this extraordinary film director. You know, you mentioned the pies in the face and then they go, oh, the Keystone Cops. Oh, yes, that's right. Now I get it. Because that was his style of, he was the king of comedy and, um, considering he was not a particularly funny man, he was a very serious man, it seems, you know, when you read about him, but he loved to produce these movies, these, uh, you know, realers, um, that we, that short films of hilarity that would be played in movie houses, and it's what made his fortune. And he discovered a lot of tremendous stars, and Charlie Chaplin being one of them as well. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you notice with Mac and Mabel, they don't really include Charlie Chaplin in the show at all. It's Freddie Arbuckle and um, other, other, a couple of other characters because Charlie Chaplin was such an enormous character in his life. He would sort of almost overtake the, the piece, I think. 
And that's why they didn't really include him, even though Mabel Norman, which is the character that I played, this the, who is the Mabel of the Mac and Mabel, she actually directed Charlie Chaplin, you know, and she was, a, she was probably the very first female director um, who existed because she not only was a brilliant silent movie comedian, but she was also a director. Oh, wow. No, no, that I didn't know. She died tragically so young in her 30s. Yeah, um, I, I know she wasn't a waitress. She was a model. She was a glove model uh, first and then, and then sort of was dragged along to an audition with a friend, it seems, that sort of accidentally, you know, ended up there and being seen. He spotted her. She had what we were talking about earlier, probably yeah. that star quality that uh, uh, some people, you know, they enter a room and they just have a thing. And you, you can't force that to happen. You either have it or you don't, I think. It's like they say stage presence. Uh, that, that, that's what star quality is too, I think, that you do, you're just drawn to someone. And so it seems that he was a talent scout. You know, he could spot talent at 50 yards. Um, and she was much younger than him, and because of his, I suppose his power and his talent as a director, and that he, you know, loved her work, she fell madly in love with him. Unfortunately, because <laughs> as much as he loved her, it wasn't on the same kind of level. No, her love for him. And he'd also done the um, Bathing Beauties um, films. That's right. Yes, the Bathing Beauty films were very popular. Um, you know, at the time as well. It's funny, uh, you know, he, he created so many moments that, um, gosh, all these years later, uh, how many years later, that we can still say, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was, that was his thing. That was his signature. Yeah. Well, you know, like it was one of those shows that was came up. It, it'd been done with Bernadette Peters and uh, Robert Preston on Broadway and hadn't been very successful. I don't remember exactly how many performances, but it wasn't that many that it ran for. And so that was very sad for everyone because the score is absolutely magnificent. But I think during the time when it came out in the 70s, musical theatre was changing, you know, the fashion was changing. It was becoming more modern, you know, like a chorus line was opening. So it was, you put Mike and Mabel and chorus line next to each other and hair and Godspell and things, shows like that. Yeah. It just seemed old fashioned, I think. Yeah. And I do think theatre goes in a kind of fashion circle. You know, then there was a period, do you remember when we did a lot of musicals, say later on there was the Lloyd Webber series, which was yep. sung musicals without much dialogue and much not much dancing. You know, it was like that was a phase and there was all, then we were going back and talking about tragedies like Vietnam Wars and French revolutions. And that was a period of fashion. So I do yep. think that theatre is fashionable and that's probably why at that time, even because it's a genius score, you know, Jerry Herman's, yeah. I think, one of his greatest. It just didn't click. No. So when it came around to being done in the 90s and I was approached, I was beside myself because it was a gem that no one had done. Yeah. And I was so grateful that I was given that opportunity to do that show. And we actually had a pretty healthy run in the West End. And I got to do it with another wonderful American actor called Howard McGillan. He played mm -hmm. Max Sennett. And we had this reciprocal agreement that if the show was successful in England, then because he came to England to do the show, and if it would, then if it went to Broadway, they were going to take me to Broadway with it. And sadly, that didn't happen. And I was so desperately upset that we didn't get to do it in America. But that's that's show business for you, you know. Sometimes yeah. it happens, sometimes it doesn't. 
But he came over while we were rehearsing, Jerry Herman, and we were rehearsing in Leicester. We started outside of London and he sat in the rehearsal room. And if you read his autobiography, he actually does mention me in the book, which I'm so you know chuffed about. He says I, I, he thought I sounded like a, I had a sort of Judy Garlandy voice. And I don't have the book on because I'm packing up my house at the moment because we're yeah. going on tour soon. But I, yeah. he, he does a lovely little, uh, and he actually did the, the preface for my album. He wrote the little piece for me for my oh, first really? CD. Oh, wow. So I, I, loved, I loved him and I loved, and the honour of having him in the room was extraordinary. Yeah. And, you know, because she was a real person, it was really fun to sort of, do the research and find out about her and try to do her justice of she was because comedy isn't easy I mean you know you know you've tried you make try to make people laugh and they won't laugh at you your family yeah. <laughs> it's hard. I look at people like you know like yeah. Lucille Ball and sort of you know Phyllis Diller and just those great American comedians yeah. and I go she sort of started the ball rolling you know Mabel Norman because she just was funny so to me it was very important that she was funny because that was what she was famous for yeah. she was a silent movie comedian and then just reading getting to know her more there was a lot of tragedy with her addiction and with her yeah. you know need to be loved and um yeah, she had problems, as do many of the greats, mm-hmm. Edith Piaf and Judy Garland and others. Yeah. And I said, Barry, I'll never be a superstar because I don't have enough vices. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some, just not on, on the spectacular level I think that they need to be. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Although maybe just because I have a partner in life uh, and I have had been with my husband for 35 years, perhaps that's what's kept me very together and grounded and supported. And I think yeah. a lot of the time these people don't have it. No. And so that's why they tend, tend to go off the rails. Um, yeah. They're living their life and their art and their craft, but they don't have another sort of something to fall back on or feel secure about. So uh, when you decided to talk about Mac and Mabel, did you kind of know the background of it? No, I knew it was there was something to do with filmmaking okay. because obviously the two songs that I knew, which I I didn't know Tappy Troubles or Wherever He Ain't was from it, mm. but the two uh, the two songs that I did know, I kind of could sort of connect the dots together that he's a filmmaker and she's a starlet, so that story sort of wrote itself in my head. And I like I like a, a true story, you know, yeah. like I I like. A, a, anything a documentary or whatever that's my favorite thing to watch if it's a true story and yeah. what they said was that the show was too sad was one of the oh, reasons really? they said the script is sad it's like sad you know like what about you know the, the Vietnam War that's a sad story too yeah funny that they would use that as a reason for the show not being successful that's yeah that's weird but, um but it had many script changes and I went through a few of them myself when we did the show in London you know yeah. Uh, Michael Stewart, the writer, had died at that point, sadly. So then his sister, her name is Francine Pascal, she took over as the writer when the rewrites were being done for the new version. We had all sorts of things. We tried, you know, tried to do a sort of fantasy wedding in there and tried to make it a bit happier and a bit brighter. And But I was very lucky because I got to meet her grandnephew, a chap called Stephen Normand, he just wrote to me when he found out I was doing the show and said, look, if you want any help in any way, that was his auntie, his great, great auntie. And he was incredibly generous and helpful and gave me lots of information, photos, trinkets, 
things that belonged to her. Uh, so that was fortuitous that I got I got to meet him. Wow, fantastic. Um, uh, just on, on the tragedy of it all, there was one of the bathing beauties, um, Maria, I can't remember what her name is, um, but she died tragically young, I think in her 30s or something, and that death ended up sparking basically the, the movement to get things like the Betty Ford Clinic, and oh. a, a, it was a certain, um, a certain like a, a, a nursing home or a hospice for famous people or celebrities the betty ford clinic is you know many many great stars have gone there and gone into recovery there yeah, yeah. basically it, it inspired um, her death inspired the industry to look after its stars and people which mm. now looking at all the union fights coming out of hollywood i don't know if they are looking after their stars at the moment oh look it's it's a, it's a hard business to be in i think in um, the movie business, yeah, theatre's bad enough, but I think being on that sort of scale must be uh, very, very difficult oh, and incredibly yeah. competitive. Imagine, yeah, you don't. I suppose you don't often get to choose the projects because no. they, you know, yeah. it's a whole creation that happens, and then someone slotted in. Yeah. But it was a. I tell you what, the music became quite famous because I don't know if you remember there was a couple of very famous skaters called. Torval and Dean. Oh, yes. I saw them when I was a soon-to-be gay child. I think they might have turned me gay. Hey, maybe. But a lot of people, I think. But, you know, they, they skated to the Mac and Mabel Overture in one of the competitions that they did. And that's when a lot of, honestly, this sounds crazy, but a lot of people became familiar with the music because of that because it was a really beloved, that routine they did when they did all the train, da, 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 all that stuff that they did. And the audience was going wild because they, the storytelling was so brilliant on the ice. And so every time we promoted the show in England, they would talk about the and Teen thing. And then there'd be all people, oh, yeah, I remember now. Now I know what the music is. I know what it sounds like. Um, and then, yeah, it got a lot of airplay because of that. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I really would like to to get my hands on it because I'm huge on cinema and history and filmmaking and all that. Oh, you mean like a sort of uh, a reimagining? Um, not even because I'm sort of against against changing the script to add in modern references, mm. but approaching it because there's there's one thing I, I I'm going to bring up with a, a question in terms of looking at things differently. But we'll we'll move on from the musical because while on filmmaking, I have a question about Moulin Rouge. Okay. How many times on the set were you guys sitting around going, what the hell is he talking about? G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com dot com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of the Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. 
After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. Oh, how can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep, as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I, I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened, everybody gathered around. I didn't see one person who wasn't watching, and then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime, but it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins, but both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, Toniston joins Polly on her own, equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large, white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom, or what, may be operating this obscure crane. Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spiderweb? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! While I'm filmmaking, I have a question about Moulin Rouge. Okay. Love that movie. Yeah. It's pretty beloved, that yeah. film, by a lot of people. It is, it is. Um, it was just because I was, what, 16 at the time, and I was into filmmaking and theatre, and it was an Australian film that did that, mm. that did all of that, and it was so uniquely Australian. But I have to know, how many times on the set were you guys sitting around going, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> not too 
often actually really? for us. Yeah. Because I, I know, I know some people's experiences are different than others. And oh, look, he's just he's incredibly creative. I mean, I hadn't really worked with anyone like Baz before. Yeah. Uh, that was a, that was a first for me. Just oh, you know, first to arrive, last to leave, constantly on his feet, never stopped making, wanting to make every moment just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and also would explain, like, I didn't have a lot of film experience. I'd done a couple of things over the years. So I'd been a dancer in a sequence in um, National Lampoon's, um, what, which one, European Vacation. What? I did a number in that. How did, how did that get past my research? I've been researching your episode for two weeks. You know, blink and you miss me, but it was really interesting to, to do that, you know, it was a, my first foray into film and Gillian Lim was the choreographer and you know I then went on to work with her again as the years went by which was lovely but then I, I think I done apart from that I'm trying to think what other film work I'd done I mean I hadn't really I'd done some television but so on the set for instance sometimes uh he was really wonderful at if, if you had a question or you wanted to understand why he was shooting the way he was shooting he would explain it to you instead of going, oh, no. it, it wasn't like you were wasting his time. He was almost educating me on the, on the job. And, and the other way around too, is he was incredibly respectful of the, of the, uh, what the dancers would be capable of. So I remember working in his home. He had a, a little, what they called the dance laboratory where um, Cha-Cha, uh, John O'Connell would invent steps and things and I was sort of like his sort of body I suppose and we would work with the skirts and try and work out you know like the weight of the skirt the height of the heel when you're in a corset how many times can you do it sort of situations so all these scenarios to make the filming on the day achievable um that's why the like, can can was shot with uh, i think we had four cameras one in each corner and it was shot maybe four full out takes because if you watch that routine it's it's torturous and they, they also because we it's a bit like a cockfight you know when you watch it the perception that they had of that particular version so we the energy was just fierce you know what i mean and the, the cameramen were covered in black sort of sheets and they were being steered around so they wouldn't bang into the dance. Almost in the dark, all that was there was the lens, you know, so that they could come in real close and come out. And, oh, it was just unlike, it was just everything you could have imagined when a film's being shot. But his approach to it felt like theatre energy, which it was. He was basing it on a theatre kind of experience. And I think that really came across in, in the lens. Yeah. But a perfectionist in every way, as was his wife, who I have so much, uh, you know, respect for as well. Her design and uh, to, uh, the attention to detail with her in every possible way, and just a delightful person as well, was extraordinary. The fittings, you know, I wish now I, I'd been more sort of, the way young people are now with their phones, you know, they take pictures of everything, videos of everything. I wish I had more of that because, you know, just having a fitting for the costumes and the wigs and the hair and having the makeup tests and the just, and it was, everybody was treated the same. Everybody had to look perfect. You know what I mean? It was, um, I don't think I'll ever, ever in my life experience anything on that scale ever again. Imagine as a dancer, I was in my mid thirties, you know, and I, 
imagine at that stage of my life getting an opportunity like that um I know he could have had anybody in the world I just ended up being the one I got lucky um that it ended up being me yeah. you know like that role it's a small role but it's like no it's not are you kidding me oh, you are the cause of all their problems that's the reason why that Duke finds out in the first place goodness me like you did not have a small role that is a pivotal role in that show there's no small roles only small actors no. I, I think um I do think <laughs> not very little dialogue but it doesn't matter, you know, people, so we talk about, you know, you know, Elizabeth, uh, when Jade, Judy Dench won the Oscar and I think she was on screen for eight minutes or something. Yeah. I might be exaggerating, but it was a very short period of time. So, yeah, definitely Nene Legs in the Air did certainly made an impact in that film. And Oh, yeah. When I've worked overseas, you know, in especially America, when I was working on Broadway, people would be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, because... It was the first musical film that had come out for many, many years, you know. We, yeah. Uh, yeah, we hadn't had anything quite like that. You know, we'd had, we'd had things like you, can, you Can't Stop the Music and things like that, you know, but we hadn't had anything for many years. And it was on a, an extraordinary level. Um, yeah. So how proud were we, you know, as Australians? Yeah. Uh, look, even me, and and I wasn't involved in it, um, but being, as I say, into filmmaking, because I, I had made a film the year before. Okay. When I was f 15, um, and I raised about $5,000 myself and, you know, did all that. I had 50 extras and, and all the actors, and we used the stage at the local theatre and built the set there and used that as a soundstage. Oh, wow. So how can I see this? You know, so then, I oh, know, I was saying to another podcast recently that invited me on as a, as a guest um, that during school, me and some people who were involved in it were watching the dailies and we went out for lunch break or whatever and we came back and the tape was gone. So that tape is missing. No one will ever ah. see that movie. But it, in terms of um, being proud that that was an Australian film because we hadn't, we had The Matrix here in 1999 we could not have had that one or Moulin Rouge without the Power Rangers movie. Oh, is that right? Yeah, in 94, I think it was, or early 95, Fox in America sent the production of the Power Rangers movie plus the TV series to Australia. The very little budget and no expertise, no, nobody to show our Australian crew at the time, and remember this is 94, we hadn't had a special effects laden film at the time. Wow. So the crew were all carpenters and electricians and, and stuff like that. The people that took this job on and had to make that film without any knowledge of making a special effects film. And they also had to do the TV series at the same time because the cast were here for that. So from that, that was filmed at the Sydney Showgrounds Okay, yeah. From that, Fox bought the showgrounds, built Fox Studios, voila, Moulin Rouge. So and then never look back. No, and people don't realise that, that the Power Rangers saved the Australian film industry because, yeah, they gave them the confidence to do that. So the crew that you had on Moulin Rouge, I think you'll find that a lot of them got their, they grinded their teeth on um, the Power Rangers movie. Yes, so, yes. I mean... 
And, you know, it was so exciting. Can you imagine waking up in the morning and driving into the gates of Fox Studios? Every day of my life. Oh, look, it was amazing. And I drove through and I just felt like it was, yeah, he never took it for granted for a second. And on that day, you know, you never knew exactly what was going to happen because yeah. we only shot about 30 seconds of footage a day, you know, like it really wasn't that so much, um, but oh, sometimes more. But it was just the whole process of, there was a whole rehearsal period, you know, that we had as well, where we did all the dance routines before we even started filming, everything, the can-cans, the, the tango, the, the Bollywood scene, all of that stuff was pre-rehearsed and ready. We were all as fit as you could possibly imagine, ready to shoot those things, you know. Um, and then of course, after the, when it opened, the Sydney opening was just ridiculous. And then I got to go and go to Cannes, you know, and do the red carpet. And, and I performed the tango live in a Spiegel tent, you know, at the opening in, in, in France. And, and also then we danced outside, you know, Bloomingdale's in New York, we did the Can Can. And, we did, you know, it was, we sort of did a tour, uh, sort of like an opening tour of the film. And I got to travel and, and redo, like live, we would do the tango. And people were like, is that the same girl that's in the film? Because I think they always think everything's shot with a stunt person or whatever. And like, yeah, it's, it, we're doing it live. This is, this is really happening. And um, so that was thrilling. To, to be a part of it. And of course, because of that, you know, is probably why I got invited to, to go and do Chicago on Broadway was because I'd done Chicago here, but I think once Moulin Rouge came out, they were like, hey, you know, come and do the show here. Yeah. And it, it was life-changing yeah. for sure. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, now just on Chicago, now please don't be offended by this. Mm-hmm. I, I have a problem with this revival. I don't know what's been on for, I'll, I respect its legacy, but the, the music itself is fantastic this score the script everything is fantastic but if I'm paying a hundred and something dollars to go to a musical <laughs> please give me some set and I sort of feel like it's a little bit like yeah, I need a little bit more so remember what I was saying about fashion yeah that's uh, and I understand then it makes it timeless and and really sexy and stuff but I th- I think there is so much visually that you can do with this musical that people don't do no, I don't suppose you know this, but I, I that wasn't the first time I did Chicago oh, yeah? in Australia. I had done Chicago in England um, at Leicester, where I did start at Bank and Mabel. I did Chicago there, and I played Roxy in that version, and it was the original type production. So we were in traditional clothing. Yep. You saw the jail cells. You know, it was you, you really got the vibe of the period. Yep. Um, the policemen were dressed as policemen. So I've experienced that other version, yeah. which is very charming because it was a, that jazz sort of yeah. era, that kind of Chicago during the Prohibition. Look, looking at it with the costumes and the wig, and it, you really felt like you were there. Yeah, because um, there is a grandeur to it, I think. But you know what happened? I mean, they did it as one of those sort of... Uh, encores, yeah. Encores. And the producers, they were like, they, they love it. Why should we spend yeah. any money on it? Yeah, I've got all power to them all. It doesn't mean it's right, and no. I agree with you. Oh, good. Oh, thank you. Oh, my God, you have validated me from everyone who looks at me funny. <laughs> I, I think there's something to be said. For, and also, if you're paying that amount of money, I totally, yeah. get, you know. Yeah. But it was, I don't know. The, a, lot of the, a lot of the appeal seemed to, to be sex appeal. Uh, yeah. sort of happened 
situation. There's so much more to it though. There's yeah, there is, and I and I I always think there's room for. I don't know, it's fashionable, and I remember being a bit shocked myself because I'd always listened to the the version. You know, I loved I love um, uh, Cheetah Rivera. Of course, I do. Mm -hmm. I've, I've done about four of the shows. Yep. <laughs> so I was very familiar with the original production with um, with her and. Um, and now Bob Fosse's partner's gone, name's gone out of my head. Oh, Gwen Verdon. Thank you, Gwen Verdon. Yep. Um, you know, so, but yeah, I know, I have to agree with you. I, I, I don't, I can't say that I didn't love the version I did. And I yeah. got myself so fit for that to make sure that I look good in that costume because there was no way I was going to go out there. Um, but I've, I've done the show a few times. It's yeah. it, the score is so good. It is. I mean, it's... I love Candor and Ebb. You, you, yeah. I could talk to you about musicals till the cows come home. You know, Cabaret, The Rink. Uh, I, I've done Spider Woman. I've done Chicago. I've done quite a few of their shows too. Yeah. And I've actually been lucky enough to be in the room with them as well in London. They Candor and Ebb. I, I sang at John Candor's birthday at the Royal Albert Hall. You know, like I, I, I got to meet a lot of. Not everybody gets to meet their heroes and work with them but i've been very fortunate yeah no you have but just lastly on chicago isn't the whole point of musical theater is for a director to take something and look at their vision to do it yeah. in in the way they see fit and which is why emulation drives me nuts because every community theater will do chicago now and they will do that same thing of the band takes up most of the stage and they're all in black clothing and i'm not buying tickets unless i know that i get at least one set change in that because we have the movie for there for, for prosperity. And that does the same thing of the sexy black clothing. Yeah. Actually, I was doing the show on Broadway when they when that came out, the film. So we yeah. got invited to a screening of it. And um and that was very exciting, you know, to go to be in the show while the movie was coming out was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, there is some. That's the whole point of uh, that. You know, a lot of actors don't like to be in cookie cutter musicals. They get upset because they can't contribute to the to the production. Um, uh, I don't know if the public will know what cookie cutter means, but it just means, like you say, replicating something that was done before, and it's uh, and so you don't get to yeah you know, contribute artistically to the character or to the way that it's been presented. So nine to five. Like, so I'm just going to throw nine to five in there. Here's a production that's been done. The production we're doing was has come from London. It's not anything based on the original Broadway production. It's a reinvented version that they did in England. And of course, when it comes here, I mean, I know that I'm not going to be the same as the girl that did it in England because we're just different types. And and I, I've already had that discussion to be able to say, listen, if I feel like I want to contribute something to this person who I'm really getting to know now, you know, now that I'm thinking about her a lot would that be okay? And they're like, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like I've done enough now to be at least be allowed to perhaps, you know, just put my hand up and go, hey, I think this might be a really cool thing to do. Yep. And I think you'll find that's what composers and lyricists call star quality. Oh, God. Someone who does the work, who shows up with their homework done and contributes. Now, have you ever gotten into the giggles on stage? Oh, look, 
I don't know. You know, I'm a bit of a bore when it comes to things <laughs> like that. I really don't like people mucking around on stage. I don't, yeah. I've gotten into quite feisty, you know, backstage <laughs> conversations with people. I remember doing Westside once and the boys, one of the boys farted on stage and uh, everyone started laughing and I was furious. I was like, yeah. how dare you <laughs> when someone's being raped? How dare you? But, of course, they, they were young. They couldn't help it. Yeah. But I am like that mother hen who tries to keep everybody on track. Yeah. And I've spoken to friends, you know, other artists who's, you know, I remember Deborah Byrne telling a story where she laughed so much one night in Lame is that she peed herself on stage. <laughs> and you just go, oh, my God, I can't imagine that happening. But, no, I'm a bit of a bore like that. I have had... I've, I've had experiences of watching people not be able to stop laughing. Yeah. There was one moment with Marina and I on West Side Story, and this is true, we did laugh this night yeah. because uh, the lovely Adam Marchant was playing Bernardo mm -hmm. and Martin Cruz was playing Chino. Mm -hmm. And they used to come in the doorway of the bedroom and and I, I was leaving and and they'd be like, oh, we're going out tonight sort of thing. I can't remember the actual dialogue. But this particular night, Adam put his hand on the doorknob of the set and the door wouldn't open. It was jammed shut. And then he's pushing it, he's trying to push it with his shoulder and he's trying to open the door. And we're inside waiting for the queue, you know, for him to come in. And Marina and I, she's at the same machine. I'm looking at here, which when you can see our eyes are getting bigger like this, what's going to happen? Yeah. And Chino's there behind Then the two of them trying to push the door open and then on the side of you remember the set but the front of the set of the dressing the, the the bridal shop was open and so after many many attempts of trying to get through the door Chino and and Bernardo just walked, walked around, around yeah. onto the <laughs> well that the audience roared with laughter yeah and of course, because the audience was laughing, we couldn't help ourselves. You could not find that funny. No. <laughs> just basically just walked around. Yeah. But yeah, it is very hard for some people to stop laughing. Yeah. Marina is one of those people. She's a giggler. Is she? Um, yeah. She's a giggler. Whereas I get the stern face on. I'm like, come on now, pull yourselves together. Yeah. I think I'm a, I'm a bit of both. If it's me laughing, that I'm fine. Like if it's someone else laughing, I'm like, dude, we're doing a show. Shut up. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's the same. Now, what has been your experience with standing ovations? Oh, yeah, you know, they happen more overseas. Yeah, yeah. Australia's not really famous for their standing ovations. No. Um, I don't know if it's just a lack of education that we had to behave in a theatre. They're not great clappers either, I have to say. They're not great yeah. clappers. Uh, compared to overseas, it's a, it's a culture, it's a tradition overseas that you respond to things. You, you show your appreciation. Yep. You might not, you might clap like that if you don't like it. You might clap like that if you really like it. But, you know, overseas, particularly America, they're quite happy to get up on their feet and give you a standing ovation. Yeah. Um, I have experienced it a, a few times with my own shows, which is different. I think that's because they show an appreciation because you've done pretty much part of the orchestra of course it's with you but you've done the whole thing yourself yeah and so I, so I think quite often they're like come on you know she's just done two hours let's let's give her you yes. know but um I think it's a wonderful wonderful thing yeah, you like it um, yeah. yeah I do I think it's an incredibly exciting thing to happen but something I don't like that I've experienced in America is people shouting out from the audience yeah don't ever do Rocky Horror then um, because no. they're going to shout. Uh, yeah, we've, we've heard some horror stories from American audiences that they're not exactly polite. 
like I went to see the color purple. I saw the color purple with Cynthia Oriva. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was an incredible experience because she was amazing. But she sang the home, the, the home song, the big song, yeah. the song. And then when she finished in that little gap before the applause that happens sometimes where mm-hmm. people are just <gasps> drawing a breath because it was so breathtaking, mm-hmm. literally. This guy in the audience yelled out, where that Tony at? Where that Tony at? He screamed, meaning this woman deserves a Tony. Yeah. This was before the Tony Awards. And everyone, of course, found that funny. And I just thought it was kind of rude to her to take that moment away yeah. from her, where she just sung her, like you could never imagine. She's so spectacular on stage. And then he kind of, as, as much as he wanted it to be a compliment, kind of ruined the moment for everybody. Yeah. But then at the end of the show, I did turn around to him and say, the Tony is right up there on the stage. And if she doesn't get it, yeah. <laughs> then it'll be a crime. It will. <laughs> that was at the end of the show. I said to him, that's where the Tony is. It's right backstage up there right now. So, yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? When people yell out, you go, oh, is it about you maybe this moment or is it about them? That's exactly. And that's. I think that's why I have a problem with the standing ovations and why I keep asking people because I sort of feel like now it, Reality TV audiences have affected it. Oh, I see what you mean. It's it's diminished it a little bit. Like I, I sort of feel like when when I've written a just say a chapter of of my novel that I know when I have nailed it, but I also know when something is just tepid out or you know it hasn't been very good. But for someone to look at that not very good and go, "Wow, this is amazing, the best thing ever," I sort of feel like to calm down like I you don't need to make me feel good I kind of already feel good you you've read it and shown your appreciation or or whatnot um so I sort of feel like it's diminished a little bit but in terms of the yelling out during the color purple John Doyle who directed that production I believe um he would not have liked that because he's he does not like the applause during a show other the standing ovation during a show because everything is so timed and Oh, yeah, I have to agree with you on that. I I don't think a standing ovation during a show is a good idea at all. I mean, show it at the end. But I think it does, it it breaks the fourth wall in some way, in a sort of in the opposite way. You know, it's like if someone laughs on stage, the moment's spoiled. But, and vice versa. If someone in the audience does that, then I I, I have to agree. Yeah. Uh, I'm very happy for them to show their appreciation at the end. But during a show, I don't know about that. That's, that's a, a once in a lifetime, like, and I'm telling you I'm not going moment. That's a yeah. such an incredibly transcendent moment. And and I was talking to people like Joanna Gleason. Um, she talked about getting her first standing ovation in Into the Woods. And it wasn't opening night or anything like that, I don't think. Um, but that sort of went then she felt like we nailed it. That's that that we earned that. That was ours and and I sort of feel sorry in a way for a lot of artists in America that on Broadway and it, sometimes in the UK, in the UK, they're more polite about it, I believe. Um, like, oh, I guess yeah. everyone's standing up, so we should too. Um, yeah. But in terms yeah, of Broadway, right. it's it's like, it feels very structured. It feels like regimental, like, oh, this is the point where we as an audience stand up now and show our polite applause. But that's not what a standing ovation is. It's like throwing the roses on the stage. That's mm-hmm. that's for you know the the 
the queens of the theater and stuff. So um, what sparked it off was seeing a <clears throat> bootleg of Once on This Island. Oh, yeah. A recent revival. And yeah, I saw that, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it happened when you saw it live, but that first song, the transition between Little Timoon and Older Timoon, when that oh. transition happened in the middle of the song, the audience stood up and applauded. But there was no magic trick. There was no twirling around or ribbons or fireworks or smoke or anything. It was literally the girl ducked away and the other girl stepped out. And I don't yeah. know why, but it pissed me off. They also stood on opening night. They stood after the song yeah. that the, um, the oh, I, can't, I don't know the score well enough. Yeah. The, the, the larger than life character sings the song that's a real crowd pleaser. And there was a standing ovation that night on the opening, because I was there on the opening night oh, of wow. that song. Yeah. And that was sort of like, oh, but it was, he was amazing. Yeah. You know, he uh, really... uh, Alex Neal, yeah. Oh, incredible. Yeah. It was incredible. But I still thought, oh, this is weird. I'm not used to this, people standing up in the middle of the show. This yeah. is strange. No, it's not interval yet, kiddies. You think they were clapping the scene change? You know, like I know she yeah. went from one age to the other, but that moment, remember that change where the scenery, when the rug moved and everything just sort of suddenly they changed the set completely. And that was another moment that was like, wow, that was really clever. But I just don't, I don't know why you have to sort of break up the show because of it. Yeah. You know? It's it's audience. It's super fans wanting to be in the spotlight. That's what it is. <laughs> Says the man with a podcast. Uh, okay, now um, I'll because I've kept you long enough, obviously. So I'll I'll try to finish up now. Nine to five. You have this amazing cast of of Australian theatrical royalty. Yourself, Marina Pryor and Casey Donovan. Now in Japan, they have an all female review where they do musicals they they'll do oklahoma but with all females yeah that's right yes so what would be one male heavy show that you would love to tour australia where the cast is entirely female it's so funny because i was thinking about this the other day i remember going to see a cabaret show in england many years ago and this wonderful lady she decided she'd get up and she'd sing all male songs the songs that she never gets to sing, like Maria. Yeah. You know what I mean? The songs that you, not that you're not allowed to sing them, it's just that it's unusual to hear. And so I was like, wow, you know, maybe I should really think about doing that again. I should think about that in my show. Occasionally do a song that's normally sung by a man. Yeah. You know, like, God, oh, for instance, Carousel. I would yeah. kill to sing, you know, you know the song, My Boy Bill. Uh, I no, I kill. don't know it. No, sorry. You don't know Carousel? No, it's, but, it's one that I, I, I love Rogers and Hammerstone, but that's just one I haven't. I just can't remember the title. It's called something like, it's, I don't remember. No, you'll never work, walk alone. No, no but that's in the score. Yeah. But he sings the, my boy Bill, he'll be tall as a tree. Yes, he will, will Bill. And like a tree, he'll grow with his head. And it's like, it's the most, it's a story song. Oh, I can't think of the name of it. David Campbell's done it, Philip Cross's done it. I'm sure they've all done it. They've all sung this song. I would kill <laughs> to sing that song because it's such a great story song. Yeah. But as far as shows are concerned, I can't think of one. Like, I know Jersey Boys is a male. I mean, it's not a show that I'd really kind of particularly want to sing. Um, 
a role, a role. That would be the role. His name is Billy Bigelow. Yeah, Billy yes. Bigelow yeah, yeah. in Carousel. That would be the male role that I would love to play. And he's yeah. kind of unlikable at times too, which makes him very interesting. Yeah. And look, as we I've said numerous times on this show, you don't have to like a lead character. Characters are complex. They're meant to be. They shouldn't all be likable. Well, you know, my character in Nine to Five, Roz Keith, she, I, that's one of the first things I sort of noticed about her on the page was that she's not particularly likable. She's annoying, actually. She's irritating. She's annoying to everybody. But to me, that's straight away, it's characterful. Um, yeah. And also, I think that she, she has a really great journey because what you realize about this woman that inside of her, you know, because she's crazy about the boss, um, that she's this love sick fool who there's another side to her that's really uh, likeable, you know, because we've all felt that way when we've maybe had crushes on people and stuff. So I love the fact that she's got a couple of dimensions to her. And I think by, you know, the start of the show, her journey will be very different by the end. Yeah, I, fingers crossed I get to see it. I really hope I get to, because I just at the moment there's so much theater I want to see. <laughs> Oh, there's so that's the exciting thing. There is a lot. Well, I haven't seen Moulin Rouge yet. You know, I haven't yeah, seen I was, that. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, there's a lot going on. All of a sudden, Hamilton, of course, I've seen on Broadway, but yeah. I haven't seen it in Australia yet. Yeah, no. Because I, 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 that's what I do for fun. I go and see shows, like a busman's holiday. Yeah. I mean, that's. People go, what do you do? What are your hobbies? I go, I'm ashamed to say I go to the theatre. That's my hobby. It's my hobby. Why not? It's it's your mm. life. You've been a, the top of our it. industry for for how many years now and oh, but i just and i love to watch people and be inspired by them yeah. and learn you know you still learn about your craft and exactly the yeah the fashion of it changes you know the way you perform changes what something i have noticed a lot lately is that there seems to be less eye contact than there used to be now. Performers sing out front a lot to the audience not to the person they're actually talking to and it's yeah I've been noticing that more and more. And I think that, that that's a bit weird. But. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree as an audience member. Don't look at me, please. You guys are doing your thing on the stage. We're the ones looking at you. Do not look back at us, please. Yeah, you don't want to be in the show. No, I, I've paid to be here. Please leave me alone. Um, no, it's that's being me. No, I, you guys work your ass or something. Okay, now last question. I have said this numerous times before that the Australian theatre industry does not look after its performance. There's not enough cast albums out there, mm. plain and simply. Look at the amount of shows in the past 10 years that we have had alone and the of the big tours, we've got a Mary Poppins recording and a Grease recording. Mm. So two musicals that already do exist out there, but I would have loved an Australian Hairspray recording or whatever mm. else like the hamilton as well they should have given the wicked girls a recording as well once upon a time they did there would be the australian beauty and the beast as well as the london beauty and the beast as well as the broadway one not anymore for some reason also i think the melbourne east end district is weak we need three four more theaters at least let's cut off half the road let's make this an arts precinct let's actually look after our artists and give them an industry to be proud of goodness gracious me like this is why artists are scrambling and taking any work they can get because the options aren't there let's get some sit down productions that come to melbourne and stay not sydney please melbourne because that's where i live what do they call it then do they call it what do they the call east it? end 
East End sounds like you know some something in London where you go and buy your fish and exactly. your exactly vegetables before you go to West End where the big theatre is. Like we need an I'm Australian. Sure was, I don't know who came up with that idea, but I'm not sure that was wise. Oh, well, like they, they, you'd need to have a think tank, wouldn't you? You'd need yeah. to sit around and sort of come up with the. I mean, the problem. The problem is, even I think you're absolutely right. It's sad about the recordings because basically they're not going to do it unless they're going to sell thousands of albums yeah. and they can't be sure that they're going to sell out. They're not going to do it. No. So, but they don't promote their theatre people enough. Uh, we're almost no. like a curiosity, you know, when we do interviews on television, it's always pretty much the same questions about how do you feel about needs. Oh, God, no. It's not very deep. Uh, and, no. and I think uh, so the culture in the country gets very little attention. It's like it's not an important part of our being and overseas in Europe and in America, it's a very important part of their being. Mm -hmm. You know, the industry on Broadway brings in so much money into the country and and Europe as well, the ballet companies, the opera companies, the, the drama, drama companies, the, you know, the huge musical theatre productions that run for months and months and months and years mm -hmm. sometimes. Unfortunately, we're not educated in this country to appreciate the culture. No. And then it stems from schools. You know, I mean, if people aren't going to learn to play musical instruments or sing or, you know, get involved in literature or whatever, then, then they're, not going to, they're not going to know because they're not being educated in that way. But that's partly it's uh, uh, it's not our fault, but it's the the fact that the government don't hold it very much in any kind of uh, that it, it, they don't admire that. No. What, and it's so beneficial for people's health and well-being. Yeah. You know, music. And, oh yeah. And, and this, so yeah, I get I get very upset about it, which is yeah, hence why I I tended to go and work overseas quite a lot because. You, otherwise you wouldn't work here it's just not enough exactly. work to go around um, why i have a microphone so i can get this yeah, stuff I out there I and I, I, I know people love it the sad thing is they go along and see a show and they just love it they exactly love it. i didn't know i didn't know i was gonna love it that much yeah <laughs> these politicians that won't put money into the arts are happy to yeah. take the free tickets on opening night and brag yeah. to all their friends and social media it's like look i'm at the hamilton opening night f off you don't even put any money or any attention or focus into the theatre industry or the arts industry as a whole, unless it's getting an American film to come and film here. And it's very interesting to me, I, I, my, my experience, I'm just going to say it out loud, of opening nights, quite often I've been in shows where so often they'll invite like two dozen sports people yeah. Why? to come to the show because they're going to be on the red carpet and have a picture taken and then... And they, they're not really that interested in what we're doing. No. They're just going to the show because it's not reciprocal. It's not like when they do a sports event, then, you know, we always yeah. have to either sing the national anthem or mm -hmm. do something. Yeah. We don't just get sort of, we don't get supported no. in the same way. And I, I really noticed during the pandemic that uh, sport, you know, was given um, a, lot of, a lot more opportunities to yeah. continue to survive whereas theatre was not helped really in any way. It was almost like we were forgotten. And, yeah. uh, and the whole business, it was um, devastating uh, what, what happened to our theatre industry. And, of course, what, is, what do people want to do now that they're coming out of the dark? They want to go to the theatre. They want to be entertained. They want to be happy. And now here we are again. <laughs> yeah. Doing our thing and no no one realizes how devastating it's been. So as far as I don't know, see that's that's probably what helps is they've they've got the West End, they've got Broadway, you know, yeah. they've got Times Square there, they've got 
they've gone all that overseas that they've established and it's respected and there's yeah. a huge influx of people who come specifically to see good theater and, and dream of getting there dream of it yeah. to, to perform on those stages like gosh if you get to work there then then you've really cracked it you know yeah i remember in a chorus line you know like i did a chorus line i remember oh, well. standing yeah. i was played a cassie i played cassie but yeah. on tour i did the uk tour and i remember being on the line and hearing De deanna say uh, you know, someone came up to her and said, wow, you work on Broadway, You're, you made it, you're somebody. Yeah. And I remember hearing that in the script and thinking, oh, I hope I get to do that one day. And, you know, then, then years go by and I was standing yeah. on a Broadway stage and thinking, I used to dream about this and hope that it would happen, you know, like it just seems... God, crazy to me yeah. that I would but it's hard work that it, did, that it did happen um but then I worked I did work bloody hard you know yeah. so I don't know I was just the gods of theatre blessed me in some way and uh and now I can't wait to get working again I'm not gonna lie it's it's scary because I don't even know if I'm gonna be any good but I don't know you know but I'm going down the street singing with my dog. <laughs> we have heard some ridiculous states, statements on this show. Most of them come from me when I'm trying to sound smart, but that's that's closer to that. You will nail it. Oh, well, we know you will. Well, I always question myself. Good. I'll question myself until I feel like I get it right. Every artist should, I think, because the moment you are confident in anything that you're about to put out in the world, that's when there's a mistake. That's when you screw up, right? So you always prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Then you refine, you refine, you refine. Keep tweaking it and if it feels real and, and you know, the audience will let you know whether they like what you're doing or not, you know. Exactly. All of the respect goes to the audience because um, if they come back and see you again, that's the greatest compliment you could ever have, you know. Yeah, so. no, that's true. But anyways, yeah. I, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I get exciting. I start to feel all excited talking about it with you. You know, like I feel like my heart's pounding and I'm like, oh, my God. So I just don't want to keep you too long because I, I know you've got a life and everything. And No, no, I, I just... I, I, I really I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And um, but I just I just wanted to say that you've made it such a pleasure. And you know, you just talking. I love hearing your passion, and then just talking about it makes me remember how much I love doing what I do. So thank you, thank you for making me feel good today. And oh, thank you. And I've really thoroughly enjoyed our chat. And um, yep. I hope you'll continue to be such a positive force for us all. I will try. I will, my my humour is pretty negative sometimes, but I look. <laughs> I do put a lot of positivity that people ignore because of the negative jokes, don't they? you know you've got to be you've got to be you and and honesty yeah. is always the best way you know if you feel very passionately about something you know i'd you're much better off just sort of putting it out there and yeah and and getting people to, the best thing you can do is to get people discussing it you know exactly i i don't like this falseness yeah we can yeah. we can do better man we've, we've had five million years of human evolution and we are still treating people as basic as ever I don't get it myself. Humans are much more complex than that. But anyways, so thank you again so much. Where can people find you on the social media? Well, I do. I do social media. I I, I could try harder. I, I have an Instagram, which is Caroline O'Connor officially. Um, I'm on Twitter as Kaz O'Connor. 
and um, and I have a Facebook uh, as me, just says Caroline O'Connor, and I think it just says artist after it because um, I have a work page on Facebook as well. And yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and I try to contribute as much as I can. Um, I normally do more when I'm actually in a show, like more backstage chat and photos and yeah. a bit more fun when I'm working. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, it, it is, I think people are very curious as to what goes on backstage when you're preparing for a show, etc. Yeah. Um, you know, they can see all the other stuff. They can find that themselves, the photos and the footage, etc. But to sort of, you know, just chat uh, with, about the process is kind of nice. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you have to get on board because that's the way the world is now. Yes. You know, that's it. you have to. Support artists and theatres. Yes, and yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, it is exciting. It is exciting when people are interested in, in what you do. Of course, you know what that feels like. And, yes. um, and also, I just think the more we do good theatre, the more people will want to produce theatre. You know what I mean? Yeah. The more they'll say, okay, this is really working. This is working out well for everybody. So, um, yeah. yeah. And I think Disney cops a bit of stick for being Disney, but how many children are going to those musicals yeah. and their jaws are dropping to the floor and then they're saying to their mum and dad, mum, I want to do that. So yeah. we've got to give them a bit of credit. Um, but it's on the Moulin Rouge musical. I don't know if I want to see it. They've added too many songs that it sort of feels like it's too much. What that movie was is perfect. The selection of yeah. songs that flowed so well, it was perfect. But to add in all these songs, I'm like, no, I'm... Well, I'm very interested to see what my reaction will be because I'm so connected to it. Yeah, I'm like, I wonder how I'm going to feel about it. It's and and also to see someone up on stage who's sort of replicating something that you did. Although I love that, I love the fact that so many shows, great shows, were written. And I look at the roles and I go, oh, I'd love to play that one day. I think there is something about that uh, that if somebody else creates a piece of work and then you get to do it, uh, that was always a dream for me. I wanted to create roles and. Fortunately, I did get to do that with A Christmas Story and also with Anastasia, you know, so other actors will get to play those roles in the future, which is really, really cool. Yeah. But anyways, I've kept you for more than long enough, but thank you so much. Anytime you want to come back. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure, a pleasure. And I'm sorry that I didn't get to, you know, have the experience of the two of you today, but pass on my regards and... um, I I got Caroline O'Connor to myself a year after having Alison Frazier to myself. What? And both of you sang to me. (laughs) Oh my goodness gracious, I'm going to be a wreck. It's a lot. It's a lot. Anyways, I won't keep you any longer. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Alrighty, I'd just like to say huge thank you and give a big, big, big hug to Caroline O'Connor, thank you so much for joining me. What an absolute honour that was. She sang the South Park song, and sooner or later, oh my goodness gracious me, what the hell just happened? But what an incredibly real and raw conversation that was. I am still, three days later, I am floored. I am blushing. I am breaking out into tears spontaneously. Again, what I said before, if anyone out there feels alone, reach out. You don't ever have to feel like that. Um, I'm not going to worry about the socials for us or anything like that, but you at home, please take care of yourself and each other. And we shall see you next time. Hooroo! Bye!